The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. What about that Canadian federal election? All that effort to get a government that looks almost the same as before. Next week, we'll dive into more of the details on the election results and the read-through for energy and climate in Canada. But this week, we're going to talk about a topic that was featured prominently in the debates around the election, inflation. So, Jackie, have you noticed how things are getting expensive for groceries? I don't know. I was doing some shopping the other day, and uh, wow. I mean, I know this is nothing new. It's been happening over the pandemic, but it's it's really noticeable. Yeah, I think it's really noticeable. And you know, another thing is cars. Mm. Recently, we sold a car, a used car, and bought a used car. And because there's a shortage of new vehicles due to these chips, yeah. I was really surprised what we got for our used car. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had to go off and buy another used car, so I didn't get well, to uh, take advantage of it. Well, this is sort of compounded with all the supply chain issues and having to wait a long time for everything from furniture to electronic parts and things, and that's just adding to cost and time. And Yeah, I try to get a kid's trampoline these days. You have to it? wait months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything you want to get, it seems like it takes months to get now. So that's contributing. We'll talk sure about does, it some more, yeah. but the whole COVID thing has really um, sapped the supply chains for a lot of different products. But it's more goods. than that, right? It's just there seems to be a rebound of consumerism, people buying things. I don't know what it is. Sort of like a YOLO, you only live once kind of attitude buying stuff. And it's just putting a lot of upward price pressure with that increased demand on stuff. Yeah. Just well, general stuff. So that's what we want to talk about, inflation. It has ramifications for the energy transition, which we want to talk about as well. Yeah. So let's give a little bit of background on how we measure inflation. And then we're going to talk about an article you wrote this past mm-hmm. summer on inflation and oil price. That's something that mm-hmm. always comes up when people think about investing. And then we're going to talk about some implications if we are entering an inflationary cycle, right. which there's a debate about, so we'll talk about that. Right. Okay, so let's start out with inflation. I actually looked it up. The Bank of Canada defines inflation as a persistent rise in the average level of prices over time. So that's what you're experiencing at the grocery store there. Right, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, of which groceries are a part. That's right. And every country measures this through this basket of goods and services. In Canada, we call it the CPI. The U.S. actually puts one out. They also call it the CPI. But you have to be careful because there are ones for almost every country. But StatsCan, in our case, tracks the Canadian Consumer Index. And this basket of goods does change over time. But for example, the current one is about 16% of the money that people spend is on food. 30% is on shelter. They don't actually include the price for buying real estate. It's the rental cost for homes. Mm-hmm. This isn't measuring real assets. It's measuring mm-hmm. kind of the cost of living. Yep. Um, but things like transportation are 16%. So you can go check it out and see uh, you know, how it's changed right back to 1950. This notion of the basket is exactly what it is. It's as if somebody from StatsCan is going out and buying a pair of shoes, some celery and bread, and paying rent, buying a used car, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, hundreds of items are in there. And it does change over time. Like in 1986, I got this little stat. Alcohol was 6%, and now it's 5%. So I would have thought we'd be drinking more at this point. (laughs) Oh, I see. So it's a smaller part of the basket. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be the price of alcohol has fallen too. That's true. 
probably that's the case with mm-hmm. COVID. The other thing is it does change over time. For example, in 1950, people didn't buy computers. So they've adjusted the basket for what right. reflects what people actually right. buy. Right. But the basket is a measure of measuring quarter over quarter, year over year, how the price of goods is changing. That price of the basket is then indexed. And that's why it's called the CPI or Consumer Price Index that consumers, in other words, people see when they buy these sorts of things. Right. And it is actually done every month. And the reason it made some news this past summer is that typically it's been quite low. Like if you look at the long-term average, it's Mm -hmm. been closer to 2% change. And and every month they come out with a number that represents the change in the previous 12 months. So if you bought that basket of goods 12 months ago and you bought it now, how much more would it cost you? However, it made some news because in uh, the month of July, it was increased 5.4%. So instead of being the typical 2%, it was 5.4%. Which is high because that was in the know, US. We, we are accustomed, certainly now, almost a full generation, I'd say almost 20 years, where the CPI has been, you know, it's kind of hanging around between the 2 and the 3%, depending, give or take. But there have been periods in history, long-standing periods in history, I mean, these Costs have been measured over centuries in some countries back to the 1800s. But in the 1970s, for example, there was a period of very high inflation where, you know, 5, 10, 15%, depending on the year, and inflation was a big issue. We also hear of countries like Venezuela and others where they go under hyperinflation, where you have 10% rise in costs daily, you know, <laughs> or even, even more than it. Yeah, people have to take the money with yeah, the uh, yeah, wheelbarrow yeah, yeah. to the bank to buy but, something. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the normal rate of inflation is expected to be between 2 and 3%. It's typically linked with sort of GDP growth. Everything grows in tandem with the economy. But once you start getting into the 5% and it exceeds the GDP growth, then you, there's sort of hints of problems that are emerging. Yeah, and I'm just going to talk about the U.S. number because mm. it increased that 5.4%. But you can go look and see what drove the changes. And it's interesting. It's not a broad basket of goods. It's used cars and trucks was a big part of it. And uh, I experienced that Mm -hmm. this month when we changed cars. You know, you go to some of these dealers, they have like almost no cars to sell. It depends on the brand. Some Mm. were better shape with the chips than others. But Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. in many cases, there's very few new cars to buy. The cost of rent and shelter was another big one. And the cost of public transportation and new vehicles Other things that you think would be there, like food and clothes and things like that, actually weren't really driving it up very much. There was a few categories that were really causing it. No. I mean, definitely. I mean, look at the real estate. If the top line cost of purchasing a home or a condo or other place of residence is going up, then assuredly the rent follows thereafter. And so that's what's been happening, certainly over the course of the last 18 months. Yeah, I was looking at the Canadian... um, the CREA, which tracks the price for an average home in Canada, and it's up about 20% year-on-year. Oh. Year. So that is kind of filtering through to yeah. the rental prices. I did want to quickly touch on another indicator that, that you may hear often around inflation, which is the PPI, which is yes. the producer price index. This is kind of the other side of the equation. What do industries get to sell their products? So they track, especially in the U.S. has one also, but in the U.S. they track many different goods and services. And you can go and see all those subcategories. But over the summer, the U.S. overall inflation for the PPI was up about 8% year on year. So that was a bit of a concern too when you start to see 
the goods and services right. that companies make go up at that rate. Yeah, and, and so for some further clarity on that, the consumer price index or the CPI is what the end consumers realize. Producer price index is what manufacturers and the makers of the goods realize. So producer price index is actually quite influenced by raw material costs because those are the inputs to make their goods. And if the prices of wood, if the prices of oil and gas, uh, plastics, which are made from oil and gas, so on and so forth, is going up, then the producer price index is going up. And the thing is, is that the last 10 years between 2010 and 2020, that whole decade was marked by actually quite a unique period where the PPI really didn't go up at all, which was highly unusual. The CPI was going up or the typical 2 to 3% per year. But now, both CPI and PPI inflation is coming back. And we want to talk about that because it does have some pretty serious ramifications, not only on monetary policy and what we could expect for interest rates, but ultimately that and how it translates into energy transition matters. Well, that is the big question, though, Peter. Is this actually signposts of structural inflation, a sustained period mm-hmm. of inflation that we're heading into? Or is this just transition? It's yeah. transitory because... We're experiencing some temporary shocks as the economy opens up. People have saved a lot of money. They really want to do things. And mm-hmm. it's just a temporary phenomena. And a lot of the central banks that uh, think about these things a lot believe that this is more of a transitory type thing where these businesses are getting going again. There's some labor shortages as they start to get back up to where they were. We have things like the CERB in Canada, which is making people not want to go back to work because they're still getting paid by the government. And so that's creating this lack of capacity. But as things open up and and that goes away, this cost pressure will recede. And for example, if you look at lumber prices, they hit a high in June, but they've come off significantly in July, right? So Mm -hmm. the supply chain was really low. The storage of lumber was low, but, you know, the system caught up. Yeah, Um, there is a lot of volatility, and I think we're going to continue to see it. So in terms of the question of is it structural or not, There are a dozen opinions, dozens of opinions out there, depending upon which economist you ask or which central banker you ask. The jury is out, but I think there's an increasing momentum into thinking, okay, this is more than just usual ups and downs. There are signs that the extra demand induced by things like government stimulus dollars, Mm -hmm. which put more money into the system, more buying power, creates more demand for goods all the way down the supply chain. The supply chain can't hack it, so you get structural inflationary forces. You have energy transition, demand safe for electrification, which means you need more copper. For batteries, you need lithium, cobalt, nickel, you name it. And the pull just creates upward pressure on all these things. So, you know, the jury is out, but I have to say personally, I think that it is an issue. Mm-hmm. I think well, that you are going to see more inflationary pressure. And so many of those things that you're talking about are in the other camp where this is not short-term. We're heading to the sustained inflationary period. There are a few other arguments, though, that it's just a transitionary thing. I will just talk to those first, though. Mm-hmm. The other arguments are that central banks are still managing to a 2% interest rate, and they have very low interest rates now. So they can easily increase the interest rates, which should help reduce inflation. So to they're put, still to put the brakes on the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still lots of levers there for them. Also, when you look at what has caused prices to go up, they look rather short-term, like autos, transportation costs, you know, higher oil prices and food? Do rent you think, costs. Do you think that's short-term, food? Well, the food didn't actually rate that high. I know you might feel that way when you go to the grocery store, but it wasn't mm. up all that much. And the other thing is there's still a lot of slack in the labor market. So, for example, in July, the U.S. unemployment stood at 5.4%. 
and it was three and a half percent pre-COVID. So these are all signs that, you know, there's still capacity in the system to deal with inflation. However, I agree, there's a lot of people with the argument that we are going to go into this. And the biggest driver of that is just the amount of government spending and stimulus spending over the COVID pandemic and even more coming. You know, Joe Biden's talking about trillions of dollars for this infrastructure bill and plus the reconciliation bill. I think that inflation certainly was an issue, certainly back in June, July, when the numbers started coming out. Uh, Certainly the July numbers would suggest strong indications. But then we had this Delta variant, the COVID-19, the uncertainty that uh, potentially has put the brakes on it a little bit. The real question is what happens if, let me just say when, because I'm an optimist, when we get out of this pandemic situation and you start getting these stimulus dollars that really start flowing into the system and you get a big pull, supply chains sort themselves out, and then all of a sudden there is a big pull on a lot of the raw materials, which influence the PPI, which then trickles into the CPI. Yeah. And I think added to that, you know, whenever that day happens, consumer spending could really rise because Mm. there are a lot of people that have been working and saving a lot Mm -hmm. of money. There's also people that, you know, feel like they have more money because their homes are worth more. Even though they haven't really made a gain, they tend to feel more wealthy and spend more money. um, Well, they get a line of credit on the higher valuation of their home and they go spend it on new vehicle, new this, new that, renovations new kitchen, and uh, it just creates that pull in demand that, uh, as I said, goes all the way back to the raw materials. And then there's those longer-term trends, like you say, like, at its core, decarbonization is inflationary. You think about it, we're trying to, with a lot of the policy that's coming out, create more cost for using hydrocarbons. If you think Mm -hmm. about the federal government's plan to get to $170 carbon tax. Mm-hmm. You know, that means that the natural gas in your home that maybe costs you 3 or $4 Canadian a gigajoule is going to cost like $12. Right. Now you're going to get a rebate check or whatever, but by its definition, they're trying to reduce the use of hydrocarbons, which will create inflation in energy use. Yeah. And at the same time, this rapid growth is probably going to increase the cost of green energy as well, right? Like if we have a lot of growth, then certain minerals that are needed for clean energy are going to be get more expensive. Well, I think and, that's and where it's well. going to come from because as I've already talked about electrification and the pull on copper and things like that. I mean, we haven't even started the amount of electrification that we would need to get to net zero. And what is the implication of that? Now, getting back to that renovation notion where people have money to spend on renovating their home, their kitchen, new paint, whatever. I mean, when we think about decarbonization, it's basically a renovation, an entire redo of the infrastructure in our economy that is largely based on a hydrocarbon paradigm. And so to think about this economy-wide renovation, not only here, but in places like the United States and Europe, the largest Mm. economies in the world, the potential pull on resources is really quite staggering. Yeah, for sure. And here's another trend, another broader long-term trend is there's this move away from globalization. You know, mm. this idea that we need to do more domestically, not be so dependent on supply oh, chains yeah. across the rest of the world. Well, generally, that increases prices. The reasons we did that is because it was cheaper to right. manufacture these goods in countries where they could do it at a lower yes. cost. So if we're going to bring a lot of our consumption, you know, where it's produced locally, it's going to cost more yeah, money repa- Yeah, repatriation of the supply chains is something that's high on the agenda of many countries. And that will probably fuel some inflationary forces as well. 
Okay, so hmm. I think both camps have good arguments, by the way. Um, well, they do. They, they do. And I think the argument for ongoing deflation is that technology has a tendency, a large tendency to reduce costs of things. Yeah, right? yeah. And so both product and process technologies, you know, the ability to manufacture widgets at progressively lower costs has been an offsetting factor, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. But as I said, the PPI, the cost of the raw materials, has been relatively stable for 10 to 15 years. So the real question is whether inflation in raw materials is going to exceed the deflationary forces of technology pulling costs down. And uh, the jury's out on that one. But I tend to think that there is going to be a lot more inflation on the raw material side, which will permeate through the economy in different ways. Yeah, well, there is uncertainty. I do think the risks of higher inflation, they seem definitely higher than before, right? There is definitely mm-hmm. some trends oh, here yeah, definitely that higher. didn't exist five years ago no, that no. are... We weren't even talking about it five years yeah. ago. It was just assumed, you know, the usual 2 to 3%, and on we go. In fact, there was points in the last 10 years we were talking about deflation, which is a whole other issue. So anyway... Let's turn to your article, okay. which is something, you know, we haven't talked about the relationship between oil mm-hmm. and inflation. And that's what your article is about. We will include a link to your write-up, which was Mm. titled, A New Episode in the Oil Cycle, Inflation. Mm -hmm. So as you all know, oil is a driver, is one of the drivers for inflation because it drives everything in our economy. And a year ago, it was about $40 a barrel. And today it's near $70 a barrel. Uh, So that increases the costs of all sorts of things like transportation, but like the food that we buy, you know, it has to be moved to us by oil and gas, it actually produced with oil because they have to run combines and tractors and things like that in order to produce the food. It's really in everything, whether it be plastics, you know, so increasing price of oil does transfer through to an increased cost in a lot of goods. Right. Okay. We'll pull out the back of the envelope or the napkin because here's the math. I mean, a $10 per barrel increase in the price of oil at a consumption rate of 100 million barrels a day is a billion dollars a day increase in the cost of all the machinery and processes that run on oil. So a billion dollars, so $365 billion a year cost to the global economy. So that's very significant. And that's $10. Mm-hmm. And we have gone from really a baseline of what is oil average over the last 10 years, 50 bucks. Yes, and over the last five years, over the last five $50. Years, $50. And now we're pushing $70 Certainly 65 to $70 looks like the outlook for the next while. So you've got a 15 to $20 per barrel rise. You know, you're looking at uh, $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year cost to the economy. And that is hugely significant at a time when we're talking about trillion dollar spending plans. It means that part of it is going to be a significant part of it could be absorbed by just running the machinery and the processes trying to renovate the economy. Right. Well, and, you know, we don't have the green energy yet, so we're going to need some of that oil and gas to develop the green technology. Mm -hmm. Now, in the past, this is part of your write-up, you talked about that when investors were concerned about inflation, one of the strategies was to put your money into oil as a way to hedge the risk, thinking, well, there's no substitute for oil, and since the growing economy, you know, and all the costs of everything is going to go up, oil should go up because, you know, it should be Mm -hmm. demanded more and it should go up along with the cost of everything. And so a lot of investors used to think about always having some portion of their portfolio in oil right. as a hedge for inflation. Now, if you look at history, there are, have been times when there's been quite a strong linkage between oil price and inflation and other periods 
where it is not. So if you look back into the the 70s, there definitely was a strong link. That's when really oil price was driving a lot of the cost increases. Sure, the oil price shocks just pushed right through. And there was a real correlation there. Now, for the last 20 years, the linkage has been a little bit less. And that's because even though we've had times in like even the last 10 years where oil has been over $100 a barrel and other times when it's been $20 a barrel, inflation has been 2% all the time. Mm -hmm. So oil wasn't really driving any change in inflation. So there hasn't been as strong of a linkage. However... If we're going into a period where it looks like we could be, where oil price is a driver of that inflation, I think that the correlation becomes relevant again. Well, the reality is is that oil should really not be driving inflation because there's no shortage of oil. It's an example of how technology over the course of the last certainly 10 to 15 years has brought down the price of oil and got us away from the whole peak oil supply narratives of the early 2000s. But we do know now with the push to decarbonization and ESG movements and divestment and so on that the thing that is in short supply for the oil industry is capital. The directives to stop investing in oil create effectively sort of an artificial, not I wouldn't call it a shortage, but an artificial constraint on oil supply at a time when demand actually has not been retreating. So we have this inflationary effect from oil, not necessarily because there was a shortage of oil, as it was the case, say, in the 1970s and beyond, but because there's a shortage of capital to invest in oil. And so this is uh, something that is not likely to go away, given the trends toward the divestment of oil Mm -hmm. and the push to get off oil and so on and so forth. But the realization will set in, like, as I I wrote, you know, you get above $80, $90 a barrel, that's when it really starts to bite into the economy. It starts to bite into the wallets of consumers Mm -hmm. as it trickles through the price of gasoline. So we're not there yet. Uh, We're not in the red zone in terms of oil. doing. But if things conspire, you know, we have extra pull, more stimulus dollars, and there is a greater pull on oil, and the oil industry is not producing to the levels of demand that are required, then yeah, we've got a situation where you potentially could see bottom up through the PPI into the CPI, the effects of oil. Right. Yes. So you're saying that it it takes a bit higher price. You you talked about when it touches on around $4 US per gallon. That's when consumers start Mm -hmm. to really feel the pinch. Now, what's different this time is in the past, whenever we saw these higher oil prices, the supply was added because people said, oh, well, the price of oil is going up. Let's add more supply. They could even raise money from investors who wanted to hedge uh, their investments with oil. They might be more interested to put money in oil because they believe that price is going up. However, we're not seeing that this time. First of all, companies are saying, you know, we're not going to grow our production. We're going to give money back to our investors. That's what they want. So we're not going to add supply, even though the signposts are there that maybe supply should be added. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, investors aren't necessarily giving them a bunch of money anyway, or before their stock prices would continue to grow during right. these periods, allowing them to right. invest more. So this is a very different cycle. And it could mean that we do enter into, maybe not this year, maybe it's a few years away, but enter into a more sustained higher oil price environment because we're not seeing that supply growth. Right. Uh, and we're still seeing different. the persistence of demand growth because getting off incumbent energy systems like oil is very difficult. Yeah. I mean, longer term, if the price of oil stays very high, it will help people move to EVs. In fact, even the prices we saw this summer for gasoline, True. I think have really levelized the economics between combustion and just depends on the vehicle, but for right. some, they make it an EV a lot more economic because the fuel costs are so low relative to oil. But even then, 
globally, only about 4.5% of new cars are EVs today. So over the next several years, it's going to be hard to ramp up EV sales. Maybe they could double, but they're not going to be able to replace all new vehicle sales for some time. Right, and that can cause a different kind of inflation. And as I've always said, it's not so much how many EVs you sell, but how many combustion vehicle engines you take off the market. The rate at which internal combustion engine vehicles are coming out of the fleet is not greater than the number of EVs coming into the fleet. Right, because people are keeping those vehicles longer. Right. And then the other important point is we always forget that light-duty vehicles are not the only use for oil. Right. They're only about 30% of the use of oil. And today, many of those other uses like heavy hauling and other transportation, you know, we don't really have alternatives. So a lot of the the net zero and transitionary talk is over the span of the next 30 years, but you can definitely foresee that there could be a decade-long inflationary upcycle here over the course of the next 10 years. We're in the very early stages of uncertainty in terms of whether an inflationary cycle is taking root or not, but uh, a lot of the indicators there would suggest increasingly that there is positive validation of such a trend. Now, the last sentence of your commentary said, there's an irony in this episode of the oil cycle. Hmm. By not investing in oil companies as a hedge against inflation, because, you know, investors are concerned right. about, you know, oil demand may go down at some point or the IEA saying we don't need any new oil fields. By not investing because of that, investors are potentially writing the script for more inflation. So explain, you know, a little bit more what you meant by that. Well, again, I mean, historically, whenever we've had an oil price shock or price rise that has led to higher petroleum costs that lead to inflationary pressures, there is all the way from governments, to, all the way from the IEA, International Energy Agency, down to governments trying to encourage the growth of oil productive capacity to meet the extra demand. Then you get the phone calls to the Middle Eastern producers, typically Saudi Arabia, from the president of the United States and others saying, okay, can you do more? We don't want these high prices, which, by the way, we saw only a couple <laughs> of months ago, but that's another story from President Biden making that call, expressing that concern. That sort of talk always trickled down into the investment community and the investment community either invested in oil as I say as a hedge against inflation to guard against the deflation of their portfolios by the rise in oil prices or they invested in it just to take advantage of the investment upcycle or both Mm -hmm. and so this time it's not happening there is ESG pressures, there's divestment, there is investors saying we want our money back, we don't want you putting the money back into drilling and into the ground. State-owned oil companies are basically following suit in their own way by having to make their social dividend payments to their country. So we're just not seeing a lot of exploration development, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of appetite for it at a time when uh, we have the potential for this big pull. And so the next couple of years are going to be very formative. Now, a lot of it hinges, of course, on where the pandemic goes and the broad Mm -hmm. economy at large, which will dictate the pull on goods and services. But the indicators are, as you pointed out, with all the stimulus dollars, there's just going to be a lot of money floating around that's going to be spent on stuff. Yeah, and there already is, and there'll be more. Okay, so let's wrap up with if the world is entering into that inflationary cycle, what are a few implications? For oil, I guess one implication could be if we do get the sustained very high prices, you know, above the $90, we're not -hmm. saying that that's going to happen, but if that were to occur, it may help accelerate a little bit of the move towards EVs. So I think the ability for EVs to be manufactured is going to be somewhat of a constraint, you know, in the next five years. It may also reduce travel time. People, even 
back when we saw prices this high chose more fuel efficient vehicles. It may change buyers. It, it buyers may, um, yeah, that, that it almost does every time. Yeah. So we, we could see oil demand actually not be as high as a consequence of that. Mm-hmm. That kind of solves itself without the supply side as much. For energy transition, though, I think there's some real implications. If the costs of all these goods go up, obviously that will slow things down. I mean, the dollars won't, won't go as far. Yeah. And more importantly, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, the central banks are likely to raise rates if inflation is convincing enough. And if interest rates are raised, then a lot of these projects, these big infrastructure projects that lead to decarbonization are going to cost more. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That'll add to the cost. Mm-hmm. It could also put pressure on politicians. As we see, politicians come under a lot of pressure these days. Yeah. But if we're seeing a lot of inflation in the cost of energy, then they may be pressured to slow down some of these policy changes that they're implementing that are costing more money for people. So I think it's not good for energy transition in general. Now, for equity markets, it has effects too. As you may be surprised to know, I was surprised to this, but pre-COVID, Bank of Canada rate was almost 2%. It wasn't quite 2%, but it was getting close. And now it's Mm 0.25%. In fact, I was looking the other day, there's this high interest savings account that you can put your money into. (laughs) (laughs) And it's offering 0.25% interest. I'm like, isn't that like uh, (laughs) ironic? High interest rate at 0.25%. But because you make no money putting your money into bonds or anything else, a lot of people are putting more money into the equity markets. Sure. And that's created some of the strength in the equity markets that we've experienced over the last year or two. Or they're buying houses and driving up rents. Yeah, that's another thing to do. I mean, it's just buying vehicles at low lease rates, putting stresses and strains. So we'll see where it goes. But right now, the conditions are conducive to inflationary forces. Okay, we'll leave it at that. We've covered a lot of ground with inflation. I'm sure we'll talk again on a future podcast about this topic. Okay. Thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.